there's no way we're going to talk about anything other than the businesses we could start together. Like, I don't care who you are, my mom, my friend, my whoever, we're just talking about what businesses we could start together. And I've got notebooks back in this closet right here, like four notebooks full of just all kinds of ideas I had during that time. A lot of them are just crap ideas. But, you know, I, look, what if it was like this and this logo like this? What if we built a bed system where the loft was like, eh, and I draw this out and, you know, then the next day. So I was just obsessed with trying to figure out the right jumping point into entrepreneurship. Welcome to Lessons in Leverage, the podcast that takes you behind the scenes of success. We'll help you unlock the secrets of leverage so you can amplify your impact in the world. Here is your host, Spencer Lowe. Welcome to Lessons in Leverage, and I'm excited to announce today's guest, Josh Little. Uh, Josh is a four-time founder with multiple impressive exits, and what I love the most about Josh is that he has such a unique combination of creativity and passion in designing and building great things. That's mixed with a very strong analytical and business side, which is pretty rare. And so he has varied accomplishments beyond business as well, husband and father, off-road enthusiast, creator of delicious pickles, and a musician. Uh, and in some ways, I feel like Josh would be the spokesperson for Dos Equis as the most interesting man in the world. But Josh, I've heard you say that you like the title of maker and that you find the most success in building from kind of nothing, going zero to one and making something. Why mm -hmm. do you like that title of maker and what does it mean to you? I've just uh, figured out that that's my mission in life to make beautiful things. And I happen to be particularly good at it. And I can actually accomplish that mission by making a jar of pickles. It doesn't have to be a business, but a, building a business is just one of the most creatively taxing things. And that's why I don't seem to be able to get enough of it and just have this weird addiction. But yeah, I make in between, I'm making jars of pickles and great musical performances and some furniture and some, you know, concoctions that are coming out of my garage uh, or Tinkering on your vehicles. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> All of those things can be beautiful things for sure. You lo love to see it. Well, when I look at your career, I think it's really interesting how you started in education. You're teaching 11th graders at Battle Creek Public School. Oh, what was yeah. that like starting out in education? And what was it that eventually took you out of that? You've dug deep on my history. Um, so w when I grew up uh, in my hometown, there weren't words used like entrepreneur or even sales rep. Like I didn't even know these things were jobs. I didn't even know you could do this. The only options I really saw were I could work at the power company like my dad did. I work at the prison where a lot of other people's dads did, or I could become a teacher um, or work in restaurants, which I was doing and I didn't want to do that anymore. So those were the options. Uh, so on, on the menu that was presented to me, I chose teacher. And if you don't know what you're going to do in college, it's not a bad idea to get a degree in education because that's really a degree in leadership and motivation and learning to sell. And, and, you know, when I left education, that's why I was successful in sales is because education and selling are, are really the same skill sets, um, just aimed at different goals. And so I think I, I really value the, the learnings that came from getting an education degree. Um, I just realized it wasn't for me and pretty quickly, like while I was doing my student teaching, but I still decided to go ahead and teach for a year. Kind of at least it. shows that you implemented it. And so was that the transition was going from education into sales in particular? Yeah. When I left education, I really, I actually went to work at Office Depot for a little bit because I didn't, I didn't know what I was doing next. And I really didn't know what on earth could someone with this skill set do for the world. And I, 
what I realized is sales. Um, and I was, I was very successful at sales. If you, if you're able to motivate 11th graders not to burn down the school and to listen to lectures about American history, you can probably also motivate someone to buy a thing. And so I found out pretty quickly. I was, I was good at sales. I started on the phone selling DSL to people that didn't even know what that meant and then went to uh, Pfizer and uh, sold pharmaceuticals and went from regional accounts to national accounts. And then I went to Stryker and sold computer assisted brain surgery uh, platforms and, and realized how quickly I did, I was out of my depth, but did very well in sales, had a very successful career in sales, but it, at each of those companies, because of my background in education and because I was, uh, you know, one of the top sales reps, they would typically ask me to come in and uh, teach everyone else to do what you do, become a sales trainer. And that was a natural fit. So it was really, you know, when I was at Stryker, the third company I went to, um, I was trying to build an e-learning program and I just thought it was a joke how many vendors I had to work with to just make, turn our binders and our CDs, and we're talking like circa 2003 to 2006, um, into quotes, e-learning. And it, it was like a full-time job. And I thought there should just be a company that does this. And that's kind of what led me to my first, my first entrepreneurial venture. That's a great feeling uh, to have, to understand, like, <laughs> here's a problem. Someone needs to go fix this problem. I'm going to go solve this problem. It's a very empowering yeah. uh, kind of approach. And I've noticed, I do feel like there's a bit of a exodus. I don't know if it's always been this way, or maybe I'm just waking up to it, but how many really talented teachers are leaving education? So that's mm -hmm. something that you see as well right now, because I've, we've hired people and I see more and more people in either groups or talking about like teachers to tech and trying to like get out of teaching and into tech, mostly because of the opportunity and the additional leverage you have in tech. Teaching ends up unfortunately being a bit of a low leverage job in a lot of ways outside of maybe the fact that you have some time leverage, you know, during the summers when school's not in, you have some leverage there that you could use to maybe build things on the side. But it's kind of unfortunate that you have such talented people that want to be teaching our kids that are instead having to go to tech and other things. Just curious if you've seen that as well and, and what your thoughts are on that. Yeah. In fact, that, that would be part squarely in my answer of labor leverage, um, because as an entrepreneur, you can use that to your advantage. Uh, I think 70% is the attrition rate of first time, first year teachers, 70% will not make it to their second year. And that's crazy, right? However, this is, this is a group of generally very intelligent people who also generally have the best intentions in their career. They're willing to take a career that doesn't pay well, and you, you get treated very poorly because of the betterment of society. So you're, you're probably working with some good raw materials there. Now, if you can just take someone who has maybe a little more of an entrepreneurial mindset or, or likes to, you know, think, think outside of the box or buck the norms or whatever, then that person can make a pretty dang good sales rep. And so we actually found this at my first company maestro where, you know, both my co-founder and I, we were both quota carrying like exceeding quota, uh, president's club sort of sales people. And, uh, and she and I both felt like hiring someone like us would be the right answer for hiring the first per the sales team at Maestro. And so we hired a lot of the people that some that we knew for that we worked with that were like trained assassins at sales. You know, you put them in the medical device world and they, they killed it, but then you put them in a startup and there aren't like established, uh, uh 
processes and the product's not quite there and we're having to be creative in how we present a deal and they just, they couldn't hack it. Uh, but you know, the people that could teachers because they're, they're in, in chaos all day, every day, everything is an improvisation. Everything is a riff. Yeah. There's always a plan. Um, but everyone has a plan until you're punched in the mouth and you do that. You get punched in the mouth <laughs> several times a day as a teacher. So they tend to be really good. If, if you have a role that you're not, you're not able to fill from someone in, who has experience, and this is kind of the missionaries before mercenaries, that can be a good move. I've used, I've pulled from the pool of teachers many a time to fill a role that maybe, you know, trying to find a good instructional designer that wasn't in uh, market or trying to find a good ambassador. Teachers can be a good pool to pull from. That's actually something I've seen as well with our business that there is such incredible power as a form of leverage when you identify really any talent market that is atypical. You know, if you're if you're hiring in the general talent markets, you know, I need this person in this role that already has experience and you go out and you try to find that person, that's ex the, the easiest person to find. Like you're you're searching for a specific title, specific experience, so you're going to find them easily. You can get on LinkedIn and search and find these people but they're going to have higher pay expectations. They're going to be harder to recruit. There's going to, it's a lot more competitive because it's the easiest pool to, to go into. And so it's going to cost the most and it's going to be the most competitive. Whereas if you can find the right, uh, for us, one of the things we found was certain uh, college programs that teach the exact skills that translate to what we do. And then taking those students and just adding some of the specialized skills and the experience they need, you know, that has been a huge reason we've been able to scale up our staff effectively at a reasonable cost and then build with them, give them really aggressive pay increases as they hit their, their milestones. That's been something that's really been powerful for us. And I think, it, you know, the teacher pool is another one. I've hired one teacher and she's become just an absolute star employee for those same exact reasons that you said, values driven, intelligent, able to cope with the chaos. And, and there's just so many benefits to that. And it's interesting how often the answers are counterintuitive, whether it's in business or personal life, like, the obvious answer is always the most expensive, the hardest. Whereas if you can go find these other aspects that maybe are, are less served or less understood, it becomes a massive, massive leverage point for you in your business. So that's a really good insight. I appreciate sharing that. When you think back on your career, is there a specific moment where you started to realize, I mean, you're in sales, you're, you're in the corporate world, then you made that jump to entrepreneurship. And often I hear from entrepreneurs that that's really where their eyes start to open uh, to leverage. But I wonder for you, was it more in the transition from going from teaching to sales? Where was it where you really started to realize like, okay, in the world, there's a lot of games I can play. There's a lot of, I'm putting out hard inputs as a teacher. I'm, I'm working hard. I'm smart. I'm, I'm doing all these things mm -hmm. and I'm only getting certain results. I'm doing that in sales, maybe in entrepreneurship. And there's such a vast difference in results that I tend to believe is because of leverage, because of uh, the system that you're putting those inputs into. Was there any key moments for you in your career where you started to realize that either you were playing the wrong game or that there were ways you could get more out of your efforts? Yeah, for sure. For me, it was, um, I was about 27 and read the book, Rich Dad, Poor Dad, mm -hmm. uh, which, I, you know, a lot of people have read the book and they're like, oh, I kind of knew that stuff. I'm like, what? <laughs> what? And like that book was a revelation to me. No one I knew or grew up with it talked like that. Like you can 
own a business if you want to. You can be wealthy if you want to. You just have to play a different game in, in a different way. And so that that book was kind of a it's it's kind of a silly book, but it, it was it was really, really uh, impactful to me. But it took about five years uh, for me to fully make that transition and build up enough confidence that I could actually play a different game or give myself permission to do that. And, and over those five years, I'd read hundreds of books uh, like that. That book was kind of like the crack that broke the dam of, of knowledge. And I just, anything about entrepreneurship or building businesses or real estate investing or investing or money or wealth or any of that, I just had to consume. And so I, I always had five or six books on my nightstand everywhere. I went, I had books. So, so that was, that was my phase of learning. And, and actually during that phase, if you came to my house or we we went camping, there's no way we're going to talk about anything other than the businesses we could start together. Like, I don't care who you are, my mom, my friend, my whoever, we're just talking about what businesses we could start together. And I've got notebooks back in this closet right here, like four notebooks full of just all kinds of ideas I had during that time. A lot of them are just crap ideas. But, you know, I, look, what if it was like this and this logo like this? What if we built a bed system where the loft was like, eh, and I draw this out and, you know, then the next day. So I was just obsessed with trying to figure out the right jumping point into entrepreneurship. And, you know, I had a family and don't come from wealth. And we had quite a bit of student debt. And yeah, our teaching jobs didn't like unbury us from that debt anytime soon. So it was, it was a risky move for me. So it took five years. And that's, that's when like the idea of Maestro and solving this problem, it was definitely the right fit of a game that I could play. Like I knew what needed to be done to build this product, you know, like, like, you know, exactly what needs to be done to customize and implement someone's Salesforce install. Like I could do it. I was already doing it kind of for myself. And I knew I could walk into the, uh, the office of any sales training manager, especially in medical device and pharma and make them cry because I knew their pain so well, you know, in five minutes I could like poke exactly what hurts and they'd say, okay, just take my money. So yeah. I made, I made the transition doing that. So it's not definitely a game I couldn't lose, but it was, it was the highest likelihood of success. So I just had to quit my job cold Turkey and go all in on building Maestro. That is an incredible story. And I think a lot of people find themselves in that mode where, you know, I think you hit on some just incredibly important points of personal development that most people need to go through. First is, all right, understanding what's possible. So like that breaking through for you, rich dad, poor dad, whether it's a book, a relationship, something you have to know that you can achieve more. You know, when you're growing up, you're like, I can be a prison guard, a teacher. It's like, I've got a selection of four careers that I see. And that's I think, how we all are to some extent. We just, we see the options we believe we have. So knowing that the options are there, then you hit on sort of building enough competence and confidence that you could do it. And mm -hmm. then taking that leap. I think those are really typical and important phases that people go through. And I see people a lot that get stuck in that second part. I think it, in today's day and age with the internet and how prevalent information is, most people get exposed pretty early now to the idea that there's, they can achieve or there's do something different else things. out there. Yeah. Yeah. But then that second phase of, well, what do I do? And yeah. I ha maybe I have all these ideas, but like 90% of businesses fail. Am I just going to be a statistic? Mm -hmm. Like, am I just setting myself up to waste time and money and be more in debt and not provide for my family and all the fears around all of that? 
that's like a really paralyzing force. So I'm curious when you look back, was there any particular relationship or a particular hurdle you had to get past that helped you get that courage? Or was there any moments that stick out like that? Yeah, there are a couple actually. One, I think, you know, I know you're a singer. I was a singer growing up and participated in, in choir and sang in musicals and took voice lessons and was actually kind of a good singer uh, and got scholarships into college. Um, so I actually think performing was a big part of developing the confidence. And as I was thinking about leverage, like what, what moments in my life have created leverage, I was thinking about how singing and performing uh, created this confidence and this ability to connect with an audience and read people and see what they wanted, make them laugh or make them cry or, or, or do what needed to happen in the moment that created, you know, the, the confidence for me to make funny videos of myself when I was a kid. And then what's, well, how do we edit these videos? Okay. So now I know how to edit videos. And, and from that, you know, like that's what I was doing at Striker. I was making videos of, of our trainings and, and cutting those things on a little, you know, computer, beneath my desk and realized, oh, I actually have all the pieces that I need to do this. I probably need a designer. I probably need an engineer for some of these things. So it was actually, you know, performing, I think they gave me the confidence, but it also gave, was a springboard for multiple tools. But I think probably a, a better experience and story to answer your question. I bought a 1986 Toyota 4Runner and uh, it had a blown head gasket. And I got it for like half the price that it should sell for because of the head gasket. So I called a friend of mine who actually used to own Forerunners and he, he he worked on cars. And I I asked him, hey, could you do a head gasket at Forerunner? And he was like, oh yeah, just get the parts and we'll meet, meet at my house on Saturday and we'll do it. And so I went to his house that Saturday, got the parts, um, towed the truck over there and pulled it under his carport. And uh, we got tools out and we started tearing things off the car. And I, you know, just, just like feverish. It was so weird how fast he was just like trying to take things off part and pull them apart and break this off and snap this off. And, and, uh, and then I started seeing him put something back on and I was like, wait, do you know, wait, have you ever done a head gasket before? No. What? Wait, hold on. Wait, we can't do this. We can't dude. This is this is major surgery. We should not. He's like, dude, it's just nuts and bolts. And if, if the mechanic down the street can figure it out, we can figure it out. And I was like, what you can, you can learn things. If you want to, you can like be anything that you want to be, as long as you have the courage to try. And so that, that experience actually, uh, because my, my father was very so much someone who it was the opposite of that just like oh you don't know don't don't do that don't risk don't don't put yourself out there don't and and i think that experience and and others like choir were were part of experience that let me give me gave me the confidence to try things and to recognize that i could if i followed that up with action i could actually learn what i needed to learn to be successful in this space so yeah i don't know how to sell medical devices when i start but i was pretty dang good at it and I don't know how to build an e-learning company and all the parts that need to happen, but I know that I can learn and I can ask questions and I can be brave enough to try. And if I can just do that, if I can be brave enough to try, then, then yeah, I can start uh, playing in a, a game with better leverage, of course. Reminds me of the movie, The Croods, when uh, the father gets on the, the kids and they're like, we'll never try anything new or different again. And, uh, <laughs> yeah. One of my favorite quotes. Uh, uh, I felt that way, yeah. That way. 
We could we yeah. can all fall into the trap of oh, don't ever try anything new or different because it's painful. You might get it wrong. You, you get might slap down. Spend time. And yeah. but but what I love about what you just shared, and I think it's such a critical takeaway for anyone who's thinking about either starting a business or making other some other high leverage move in their career that to to get more out of their life, is this aspect of both courage and competency. People that I see fail are either too high on courage and they don't take the time to become competent. So they just believe irrationally that they will succeed, but they don't know how to learn. They don't know how to go figure out and try. And that, that, that second piece you talked about of being willing to put in the effort to learn and get it and, and figure it out. And often it's, it's the order that matters because if you get, if you have the willingness to go try, right? A lot of people are sitting at a job somewhere or they're doing something and go, yeah, but I could never, I could never actually go start a business doing what I want to do because I don't know the finance side or I don't, I never learned how to do sales. And I, you know, and so yeah. some people just say, all right, well, I better be more courageous. So I'm going to go start and they quit their job. And then they realize they have no sales skills. And so they're going to fail. They're not going to do well most of the time, you know, exceptions to everything, but, but they, they, they got the courage and they didn't take the time to have the competence. But I think a lot of us that end up getting into entrepreneurship and being lucky enough to succeed or do well, it's that subtle difference of, I believe I can do it. So let me go get the competence on this thing. Let me try sales. You know, let me actually go do a little side job or something where I have to sell and just see and see if I can actually learn how to sell things. It leads into kind of the next question I wanted to talk about, which is, you know, you mentioned volley. That was probably, I would assume, one of the biggest challenges you face in your career. And leverage is something that is an amplifier. You know, it amplifies your successes, but it amplifies your failures. It makes them both psychologically, I think, feel heavier <laughs> and then very in a very real sense, be heavier and bigger. You know, the outcomes are bigger in for good. And that's what we talk about most of the time, but also for challenges or for failures. How how did that, you know, as you look at that experience, how did that affect you? And what were some learnings you had about, all right, I've got this really creative, interesting company, but that leverage that I, with creating something so powerful also makes it really heavy. What were some, some things you learned through that about dealing with challenges within leverage? Yeah. Well, I mean, we had a decent amount of financial leverage with Folly. Uh, the, you know, it, it wasn't us alone. We can, we also convinced 49 investors that this was going to be the future of communication, especially at work. Um, and there's, Lots of good reasons why that would be true. Look at Marco Polo behavior, Snapchat behavior. Uh, think about remote work. Think about the challenges of lack of communication, loneliness, meeting fatigue that are happening around circa 2020. So it's a good bet to make. And, and we raised enough money to really go after this. But uh, you're right. That also creates the pressure of making sure that 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 you win as big as the you know the the investment that you've uh you've brought in um so i i don't know that that created a perverse incentive at all because i you know this is volley was my fourth startup and yeah the, and i i've been pretty frugal with all of them so th there was no like illusion in my mind that investors were pressuring us to spend money or I, like i hear that all the time from entrepreneurs that i i don't I've never actually heard an investor say that. That's why would an investor want you to do that? Most investors are pretty smart and they want you to just do the most you can with that money and get the most leverage from that, that money. Right. But uh, with volley, the, the thing that s sometimes that financial pr leverage can cloud is paying attention to 
the the rocks in your shoes when when you're just starting out on a journey. So with Volley specifically, we saw very early, like even like private beta, that people really struggled recording videos themselves to communicate. They really struggle with it. And and for someone who has had a video camera stitched in my hand since I was a kid and was a singer and a performer, what? You're like, you really, like, <laughs> you can't get past this? It's like an ob objectively better way to communicate. It's, you're seven times faster than typing and you get the full spectrum of the other 93% of communication with just tone of voice and body language, which is exactly why we're not typing this podcast back and forth to one another. That would, that would be a very boring thing. No one would read all of that. Right. But they'll listen to it. So for all of those reasons, it's a fundamentally better way to communicate, but we had this, this problem with video. And so, you know, well, what would you do? Well, let's start running experiments. Let's, let's, let's see if we can, Let's add, let's add some filters. Let's do some softening. Let's add audio volleys. Let's do some transcriptions. Let's like, we couldn't, uh, no matter what we did, we, we'd never seem to be able to get around this obstacle of, uh, this psychological block that most people, I'd say 90% of people have about recording videos of themselves to communicate. Like we, we've all left cameras on during zoom, but that's psychologically very different than like holding your phone, flipping your selfie camera around and talking. And for most people that is about as scary as running naked through Times Square. Like that, it, it feels that primal and, and weird to them. And so we, we tried so many things we could. And luckily we had, you know, enough funding to, to run these experiments because if we were a bootstrap company, we'd probably, we probably would have just tapped out, you know, right away and been done. But, you know, and I still believe like it's, it's a fundamentally better way to communicate. And I still believe there is a future of the world that does embrace this, that needs to embrace it. It just seems that the world wasn't ready at this time. So I don't know that I'm answering the question well, actually, that you're asking about leverage. I'm probably not putting in the context of leverage, but that, that was one of the challenging things um, about Volley is that we, we were never able to get that plane to fly. Like, there was enough signal the 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 wings were like lifting up and chattering and like you we could feel the the tires of the plane kind of like losing traction for a moment but we no matter what we could do we could never get it to go yeah it's it's and, maddening and and having gone through that that whole experience uh, and I guess for listeners who are less familiar, Volley was a, you know, business to business uh, video based uh, communication platform, kind of like a, a video version of Slack uh, to hyper simplify it. But uh, very interesting product. You spent a few years trying to build it, raise money, as you said, and it just never got the traction that you wanted. When you look at that, I think there's a couple of lessons in what you shared that are very important about leverage. You, you shared the one example of sometimes because so the, in the case of financial leverage so going and raising money to pursue any venture or any business venture there's all sorts of things that can get in the way there and you mentioned this concept of it it is a blessing in that it buys you the time to experiment and, and mm -hmm. adapt and pivot and try to build but it also can make it harder to see something that may just be inevitable you may never be able to find the solution to or the timing may not be right yeah. uh, that it's not going to hit in the timing that you have there are certain things like that that it, it, it can blind you to so I, I thought that was a very interesting takeaway and then the second piece is this concept of when you think about 
uh, how it amplifies its impact on us. For some people, I think that's really heavy. Uh, I think it can be extremely difficult to go through the emotions of, you know, if I if I fail and there's no no one's money's on the line and you know it's just I'm just sort of like pursuing an entrepreneurial venture and there's just not a lot at stake, that might seem not too scary to me. But the idea of what it means to my identity and my my personality and all this. If, if I have put myself out there, if I've set up this, uh, something I believe in, if I've raised money, if I've done any high leverage activities, media leverage in terms of I've gone on podcasts, I've built up kind of the advertising engine for this, I've the financial leverage with investors, with all that, it can create, I think, just such a massive pressure on people. Mm-hmm. And yet, here you are, and it turns out you're okay. It turns out that <laughs> even even with setbacks... You're okay. And the reason I wanted to talk about this and I like talking about this is sometimes we overhype what that's going to be. You know, the world's not going to stop. Like our failures, whether it's with yeah. the the leverage we talked about earlier of just learning things and failing on the way of trying to learn, having that courage to try, or whether it's a much bigger thing like you're launching a venture and raising funds and doing something that's big and ambitious in the world. None of those, if they don't work out the way you anticipate, are life-ending, life altering experiences. You can grow from them. You can benefit from them. You know, I'm, I'm comfortable sharing that. I was someone that invested in Bali and I, I benefited a ton from it, even though I ended up losing the money on that one investment. That's not some, to me, that, that there's been so much I've gained out of uh, that experience. And so I think people who understand leverage look at life that way. I would yeah. posit that most people who live high leverage lives understand that there is some risk. There is going to be times where you you don't get to what you want, but I think the, the important counterbalance to that is, does it move you forward? Because a lot of people, they talk about this concept of like failing up. And I see a lot of people in my circle who have plenty of failures, mistakes, setbacks, oftentimes that are magnified by the leverage involved. And yet they grow and they improve and they get better from it. And they, their outcomes get better long-term from it. And that's something that I think most people get wrong in their mind. They think oh, well, if I start using leverage, whether it's financial or otherwise, you know, I, I put myself out there in terms of trying to build my own brand on LinkedIn, or I, all these things that seem scary that are high leverage. Well, if I do that, then when I fail, or if I fail, then it's going to be so much bigger and so much worse and I'll never recover. And that's just not what you actually see in the world. And so I love these examples of setbacks, challenges, failures that really, I mean, should give people more confidence to go out and try to build and try and have that courage to try because your life will get better. And that's, that's something I've seen time and time again. You're right. And I, uh, I won't say that the volley closing down volley wasn't um, painful because it was extremely painful. And if you would have asked me at the beginning, like when I started to build volley, what's the worst that could happen? Well, I raise money from my friends and I can't get it back. Like I can't and I lose it. And that's what happened. However, it's, it's probably worth saying 48 of 49 investors have done nothing but ask me to take a bow and praise me for the product that we built and the way that we executed on it. Like one investor, this might sound prideful or whatever, but I think it's, it's, it's really just trying to illustrate your point. You know, he's like flawless performance in a flawed market. And so, yeah, it did suck. It did suck to not be able to, to get my investors money back. 
but I did learn a lot. I learned so much from Volley. I'm a way better entrepreneur, especially a way better marketer, learning uh, all of the growth tactics and, and being able to instrument the data stack that I need to be able to measure those things. I didn't have all of that tool set before. And, you know, I was able to fly that plane. And so grateful for that. And, you know, investors got a front row seat to, to that battle. And it could have, like I said, the, the wings were chattering. It could have changed. It could have turned out very different. And I wouldn't be surprised if somewhere in the future that does happen and somebody builds a product that's pretty close to volley and, and, and wins with it. The world's just not ready now. So you're right. It's not as bad as you think. And the world still turns. I have to say that to myself every day. I'm going to tattoo that in my forehead and write that on the ceiling above my bed when I wake up. You could crawl back in a hole and say, well, I'm just going to go be a teacher again and do something yeah. predictable. And what I, But what, what, what value would that have versus go back and do it again? <laughs> go do something that's high leverage. Yeah. Go build something meaningful. Like that's you know, that doesn't change, you know, and that's the thing that's inspiring to me. Uh, you know, I think about just for me personally, and I'm sure this is true for most people, at least if they're smart, you know, I, maybe it's not true for like highly sophisticated investors who really all they care about is the numbers and the performance and their returns and all that. But for a lot of people that invested in Bali, who I think were a lot of angel investors and like mm -hmm. you said, friends and networks people, like I look at every decision I make through the lens of my worst case scenario, how does it make me better? And for mm -hmm. Volley, I gained relationships that are invaluable, including this one. I, you know, watched all of the process you went through in that business and it made me a better operator watching all of the different experiments you ran and the way you use data to inform your decision making and the different ways that you got feedback from customers and tested features and all these things that I thought, man, I am not nearly as good of an operator as, as Josh is when I watch uh, the way you handle those things. And, and so there's all these things that, that I paid for an education. I paid for a bunch of high value relationships. I met a bunch of very interesting investors. And so to me, I feel like I got my investment. You know, I, 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 it's just, if it also had financial returns, that's great. But, but I think a lot of people that operate in, with an abundance mindset, and and thus do a lot of high leverage things yeah. are looking for the way to make sure all outcomes are good. How mm -hmm. do I how do I make sure that even in the worst case scenario I I, I benefit? And that's also a big difference between people that I see that are high leverage and people that are not. Is right. people that are not when they lose they lose it all and they lose everything and they mm -hmm. their worst case scenario is actually that everything's falling apart. Versus when you're operating from from that mindset and that perspective of of high leverage you're finding ways to turn even the challenges into future opportunities into future successes into stronger relationships into deeper meaning and purpose there's so many things about life that are not money that you can get out of an investment out of time that you spend out of a company you build out of all of those things i just think of some of the relationships too even that you built during volley you know, that were incredible. You know, you mentioned already uh, Mitchell, but there's there's things about that journey that now will be priceless long-term. And that's, to me, that's exciting. And that's something that most people don't talk about and don't see is that even in the failures, there's so much to gain that it's, that you have to try. You have to go out and, and try. All right, so when I, when you think about your younger self, if you could go back and with everything you've learned through the highs, the lows, the challenges, the successes, there's a lot you've been through in life so far. What would you go back if you were just going to give a few pieces of advice or books or courses or masterclasses, or if there was just two to three things you could give as a little kit to young Josh, what would those two <laughs> to three things be that you think could have accelerated or, or improved your life earlier? 
Well, there'd probably be a couple of books, of course, like Rich Dad Poor Dad would have to be on that list. Like, hey, man, read this earlier. Books are so hard to recommend because it's like right person at the right time. But that 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 would have been one that would, like I said, that was a that was a watershed moment in my in my life. But then I would probably also have to sit him down and counsel him about how small and simple things bring about great things when when applied consistently. And and it does seem to be kind of a theme of my life and career that I'm always looking for high leverage, like, you know, very much doing what I do. I've said so many times, like if I'm going to get my pants on every morning and show up, I'm, there might as well, I might as well be playing with a deck that has a billion dollar outcome in it, right? Like, why would I go take a job? Uh, why would I go do this? If, if I'm going to work hard, like, because I work my butt off in the corporate world. And yeah, I work hard on my startups too, but there there might as well be a big outcome in in that in that deck and there might as well be massive learning and gains along the way if i'm if i'm going to show up at all right so i would probably have a a long conversation with him about just applying consistent action to very small things and patterns and habits in your life and and i've tried a lot of shortcuts that don't seem to to get you there and just have realized that no it's just um it's just doing the thing, right? It's the morning routine. It's, it's nutrition. It's, it's the, you know, the, the core, core things that there's, there's no shortcut to these things, no matter how many quick fad diets you try or quick bulk plans or whatever, it's just showing up at the gym and doing the reps. That's such an, an amazing lesson to distill down, especially for our audiences. We're building this podcast that so many people mistake leverage because it's an amplifier as a short-term thing right. and in actuality the people who have mastered leverage are always thinking in the longest terms possible because it is one of the largest and most powerful forms of leverage is time as a compounding factor that applies mm-hmm. with investing the person that invests consistently and it compounds and it compounds and it compounds there's that parabolic curve that just takes off over a 30 40 50 year time span that you never even get to if you only do it over five to 10 years. doesn't matter how much you put in. You're never going to get that parabolic curve on the time scale you want if you're only thinking in the next few years. And that applies to learning as well. It's, it's one thing to go read some books and then go take off. It's another thing to just commit to constantly reading and learning and acquiring new skills, constantly right. trying yeah. out those new things. And, and then you get 20, 30, 40 years down the line and your outcomes are orders of magnitude larger. And you can't look back and say, oh, it was just this one thing. I just did this one thing and then it just worked and it was – I just got rich quick. It, mm-hmm. it is 100% mm-hmm. the, the consistency over time. So I appreciate that message. Appreciate you sharing that. I, I, I've certainly seen that as well. I think that's so critical. Well, as we let you go, I uh, just want to say thank you so much for being on the podcast, being an amazing example, mentor, friend, and so grateful uh, for you spending the time today. In closing, is there anything you want to share with the audience or anything you'd like to promote or message you want to leave us with? Nah, nothing to promote. I used to say, uh, look me up on volley, but <laughs> you can't do that anymore for now. I guess <laughs> reach out to me on LinkedIn if you want to chat. Okay. Alrighty, Josh. Thank you so much. Hey, before you go, I have a small request. Our mission is to empower as many people as possible to maximize their potential through the power of leverage. Could you help us in this mission by leaving a review on iTunes, Spotify, or YouTube? And if you know just one person who would benefit from today's episode, would you please share it with them? Your support means the world to us, and we are thrilled to have you in the community. 
Thank you for being a part of our journey and helping us grow. You can find show notes for today's show and past shows at LessonsInLeverage.com, which also has links to connect with me personally and connect with our various podcast channels across your favorite social networks. A big thanks to Solve.Cloud who sponsored this episode. They're a group of expert consultants that help SaaS and financial services companies to implement, optimize, and manage Salesforce.com. They can help you with custom integration solutions and are helping customers to implement some of the most important generative AI technologies. You can find them at solved.cloud. That's S-O-L-V-D dot cloud is the URL. Thanks again, and we'll talk soon.